So I guess the, the, the issue then that you expect me to talk about is the hijab, more or less. I don't, I could have structured more or less what I wanted to say. I don't think it's useful in this point, at this point, because uh, when, when one phrases a structured academic form of communication, you necessarily have to represent a variety of points of view, pursue a certain methodology that might or might not have anything to do with with the type of actual practical problems that people confront. And I don't think that that will be useful. Academic discourse has its style and has its methods and so on. So alternatively, one can approach it more or less like one <coughs> would approach a fiqh question. Sort of approach it like a faqih. That also is not quite useful. Because as a question of fiqh, you then have to pursue a certain methodology as well. There are rules for interpretation and rules for deduction. Islam jurisprudence had developed a certain methodology of inquiry, a certain system of, of investigation. Yes, it, it had showed much adaptability and much flexibility throughout its development. However, it continued and continues to be confined within certain systems, certain, certain fashions of investigation. Now, in the contemporary age, it's a million times more problematic. While in pre-modern age, of course, you have the, the field of Islamic jurisprudence was both lively and debated. And consequently, jurists were building upon each other's works when it came to uh, that field, developing further refinements, in the contemporary age, no one knows anything about it, and those who do know are not willing to apply it in an engaged fashion with any real issue. So consequently, I, I felt that it would be extremely limiting to approach it as a jurisprudential issue. If you talk about it as a social issue, then you have the problem. And the problem is that you lack authority. I mean, social observations by themselves within the context of a religious discourse are not going to carry independent legitimacy. They might carry concurrent legitimacy, but not independent legitimacy. So then how does one approach something like this? Well, one has been engaged in these types of, uh, uh, of issues for a while, with the conclusion, the unfortunate conclusion that one reaches that despite of the enormous social costs, one just shies away from, this, from talking about it. In other words, ignore the whole issue of hijab and the role of women as well. And that is because the variety of methods used yield very little, yield very little within Islamic discourses. So then I decided that what Basically, I should do to expose you to the historical discourses on the issue of hijab from Islamic sources. Now, let us, let us be very clear about what often goes on. Often when someone makes a statement about hijab, there is an implied reference 
The implied reference is what? The implied reference that the books of jurisprudence, the books of Islamic law, say X. That does not mean that the person who's talking to you has first-hand knowledge of what these books say. In other words, it is a constructed, reconstructed knowledge. Regardless of what the books say, this is the, the sincere belief of the person who's talking to you. But yet, because the reference is made to the books, to the consensus of the jurists, for example, or when someone comes and says, Sharia says, where is Sharia? Sharia is in these books. There's no other place that you will find Sharia. I mean, there is no church that speaks for Sharia. There is the Quran itself, while hinting at Sharia rules or indicating Sharia rules often will not explicate the rules of Sharia, so the person is referring to these texts, basically. There is the historical Sharia that exists in the books, and there is the constructed Sharia in the contemporary age that might or might not have to do with the historical Sharia. This is the Sharia of the activists. What they sincerely believe is Sharia law. What is quite interesting is, is that sincerely held belief is not susceptible to contradiction by the very sources of Sharia. So if one, for example, brings the sources and says, here are the sources, because it's a constructed Sharia, it is not necessarily the Sharia of of the, of the specialists or the jurists. It is not the Sharia of history. It is a constructed Sharia and we'll talk about why it's constructed. And it's very important to understand this point and to completely absorb it. Constructed means that you reconstruct or reformulate, restructure the discourses of Sharia based on assumptions that you have towards what the text says. In other words, I am growing up within a certain context. I say Sharia says. I base this on the fact that an imam in a mosque told me Sharia says. Maybe I've attended a couple of halaqas and I've read a hadith or two. Right? Now, when I say this, when I'm saying Sharia says, I am making a fundamental assumption that the historical discourses in the books are the same. That they, that they exactly represent this point of view. If you come to me and say, well, the books are not consistent with what you're saying, my reaction will be what? No, you're wrong. They are. Although I might not have opened a single one of these books, you could say this dishonest, it's dishonest. I rather say that it is constructed. In other words, that I have redefined Sharia on but different premises than the historical Sharia was, was defined by. Okay, if you then have, to, to sort of put it simply, if you have certain assumptions about Sharia law, and these assumptions are held as dogma, and what is a dogma? Set of beliefs not susceptible to examination. That's a dogma. You are not willing to examine it. If you transform, transform Sharia into a form of dogma, or transform certain aspects of Sharia that you care about the most, for social or political or economic or whatever reasons, into a set of dogma, then the discourse becomes extremely problematic. Because then the discourse has very little to do with 
evidence or authority or, or so on. This debate is not about what the Quran says. This debate are about implied or sincerely held beliefs in the contemporary age about the role of women, the function of women in society, and the, way, the dynamics of society. That's what creates a sense of discouragement about talking about this, because time and time again, one goes to Islamic conferences, for example, or Islamic camps. You know, you're invited, you go in the, in the old days when I used to be far more innocent than today. I would go to these camps or go to these conferences, and I would attempt to not even come to a conclusion, but raise issues. Raise issues. I mean, in, in the sense of uh, needling people to think, I mean, you know, getting them to, poking them to think a bit. And, you know, I don't, I didn't expect them to become jurists, I didn't expect them to even, but at least the, the, the dogmatism by which Islam is held in, in this society was uh, a, a great cultural shock for me. I have come from a, a background in which religious discourses were very lively. You lived in a religious discourse and you, 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 you woke up in a religious discourse and you slept in a religious discourse. And it was a religious discourse in which we were not interested in finding clear-cut answers to anything. We were really interested in the process of finding answers. In other words, the highest morality was the process, not the end of the process, not what the process will yield. To put it differently, no one went to study with any sheikh because the sheikh had the right answers. People went to study with the sheikh because the sheikh could ask the right questions. Now, coming to the United States, it was a great cultural shock. People here didn't care about the questions, the right questions or the method you use to answer, get answers. People here cared about the answers. And if you said the right things, you're in. If you said the wrong things, you're out. And just poke things a little. I used to go to these conferences and bring an issue of a slightly different variation, and I found that the, the responses of people were quite amazing. I mean, the, the, they would concede that your debate is based on the sources, concede that the sources are supposed to be why we believe what we believe today, but yet insist that there is no place for this discourse, and consequently want this type of discourse excluded. I've never found something more dogmatically held than the issue of hijab and the role of women generally. While you find a certain complexity about the role of women in, 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 in other contexts, there is no complexity about the role of women in dogmatic Islamic context in the United States. We, for example, often had halaqas in which women attended. And this was not held, this was, the halaqas were often held in mosques or in the homes of sheikhs. We had some halaqas in which the women would sit toward the end, some halaqas in which they would sit in the front, and if the sheikh was hard of hearing, the woman would always sit in the front and the men toward the back. We had some halakas in which the room was sort of split. There was complexities. And we also had some sheikhs that hated women and didn't want them to attend their halak. Or constructed a curtain and told them to sit behind it. And we used to call them the, uh, the Wahhabi sheikhs. These were the, the sheikhs who have Wahhabi influence. 
But it was all accepted within a system of discourse. I mean, it was all accepted as all equally valid recommendations for an Islamic way of life. Whatever I tell you, if I would have constructed this as an academic discourse or if I would have constructed this as a fiqhi issue, because this issue is so dogmatically held, it's very easy then for you to either accept or exclude what I've said purely on dogmatic grounds. Not necessarily because you have become convinced, but simply because the position is consistent with your political or social stance, which I find extremely problematic. Consequently, what I decided to do is do it in a very boring fashion. And I have a, uh, a methodology about knowledge. The more you care about something, the more learning it has to be boring. The less sophisticated, the more excited it is. You sort of popularize it. Uh, you popularize it for, for anyone to enjoy themselves. But once you start getting serious about topics, about issues, you, you cannot popularize, and you cannot essentialize, and you cannot entertain. So what I'm going to do, basically, I'm going to share with you what the sources say. I'm going to translate some passages, explain the backgrounds of other passages, give you some historical background, a, a comment on the social dynamics it plays in the contemporary age, and then whatever conclusions you want to draw from this, you may draw. So in other words, I'm, I'm not going to give you an easy way out. The issue of hijab. As you will see in, in, in one of the sources, pre-Islamic Arabia, both in Mecca and Medina, but Medina uh, more so than Mecca, had a rather ancient standard as to how a, a woman should be or should not be covered. Some of these standards, like if you look at the social mores of, of uh, uh, Greek society or um, Greek civilization or the Roman civilization or the Pharaonic civilization, some of it would shock you. And it would shock you because by contemporary modern standards, some of the material, or some of what you see is nothing short of bizarre. So it was quite common, for example, for women to walk around with bare-chested in several of these ancient civilizations. Well, in pre-Islamic Meccan and Medinan society, there were several practices that were, by our modern standards, seemed quite bizarre. There was an industry of prostitution which was publicly established known by red flags, and these were called Zurayat and Rayat al Khum. In other words, these were tribes for prostitution, tribes that basically lived of, and you have the same situation also in India, which in which there are tribes known for their long involvement in the prostitution industry. One of their, and there, there are some very famous cases that have come out from Anglo-Muhammadian law during the British colonialism in India about this. Now, these women would basically, or these tribes would basically set up tents and put up a red flag, hence announcing their location and their function. Further, there were a widespread practice of 
women-owned, either through being bought for slavery or through uh, captivity in war or through inheritance, in other words, you inherit the woman, or through certain political dynamics in society, in other words, you would be given the woman and you own the woman, and then these women would basically be used quite widely for prostitution again. These women were recognized by certain forms of dress, that their hairs must be uncovered, their upper garments would be transparent, and the lower part of the garment would be slit so the legs can show. A common practice was for either the women who are slaves, basically, used for prostitution, for enjoyment of the master, and here prostitution doesn't mean just money. The master may just share the woman with his friends. But this was quite widespread, quite widespread. Then, who were the people that got married? These were the honorable women. The honorable women, the women of family, of ranking, got married. It is a, a recognized marriage. And when she is married, the rights of the husband are far less than the rights of the husband or the rights of a man if he is, if he has a slave or he has a prostitution, a prostitute for his use, or if he somehow has made an arrangement with, with, the, with the woman of the red flags. So in other words, you can look at marriage not as the way we look at it today, in the sense of the natural course, natural course of events for any woman who wants to uh, be involved with a man, or a man who wants to be involved with a woman, we have only one way to do it today, and that is, well, of course, in this society it would be boyfriend-girlfriend, but even then, that, that does not legally have the legitimacy of, of a marriage. So, unlike our attitude, marriage was reserved for women of ranking, women that descended from proper families and proper tribes. Tribes that have not been defeated, tribes that are not impoverished, and so on and so forth. Part and parcel of this is the amount of exposure, flesh exposure, that one confronted, both in Meccan society and Medinian society. It was, for example, among the fashions of the women in Medina to wear what we today would call a vest. And the vest would basically come down, cover the, the breast, but not the cleavage area. So it would be open from the middle. And like more like a cowboy vest, very similar to a cowboy vest, where the stomach and the back is showing, but the otherwise it's it's exposed. People perform pilgrimage from a variety of tribes, nude, men and women, and that was also quite well known. Nude pilgrimages around the Kaaba. Slave women, in particular, and women of low ranking, would walk around in the markets with their chests uncovered, particularly the chest. What was quite common is to cover from the knee to the belly button. Women of certain status, not high-ranking status, she would basically walk into an area and stomp her feet. When she stomps her feet and you hear that rustling, you know 
that she is basically calling you on. Now, calling you on to do what? She could be a prostitute, or she could be simply looking for a man to take care of her. In other words, what we call wala'a, that she's looking for someone who would declare himself her protector in return for conjugal relations and so on. She could also be simply looking for pleasure. And it seems that, that all of these forms were quite common. Now, it is very important to recognize that this is the context that we are addressing. It is not a context in which there are what we can call Victorian sexual mores. There is much uh, laxity, both in terms of, of nudity and, and, and coverage of the body, and much laxity in terms of sexual relations. For example, you could never betray your wife of high ranking. But betrayal did, betrayal did not mean that you can't have sexual relations with others. Betrayal meant one thing, that you have a relationship with another woman of equal ranking. See, that's betrayal. But sleeping with a slave or something like that, so what? It would be above the dignity of a woman of high ranking to care if her, if her husband is going and dealing with lower classes, so what? But yet, I don't want to essentialize even on that point. I don't want to essentialize even on that point because we do have evidence of women such as Hind, for example, who did not like her husband uh, messing around with even women of, of lower ranking. But she, she was quite arrogant and would tell him, you touch them, you don't touch me because you bring their, self, their filth to you. This is the social structure. You cannot simply jump into a text without understanding the social setting of the text. When the text says, for example, cover, okay, fine, but cover what? And what is the meaning of cover if you do not understand the, the context, the social context by which this, in which this text is revealed? How do we know that this is what existed, both in Mecca and Medina? We know from Arabic sources, from Islamic historical sources, from non-Muslim sources that visited this area during this time and reported on it, particularly Byzantine sources, various literary documents that, was, that were left about various issues. And this continued to be the situation, by the way, after Islam came and even after migration to Medina. In other words, these forms of these forms of widespread social practices in the dress and sexual mores existed even after Islam came and the, the, the Prophet had migrated to Medina. What basically Islam started doing is incrementally prohibiting the most glaring and the most um, um, what we can call morally offensive forms of these practices. So it prohibited prostituting your daughter, because some people did that. They would have a lot of daughters in prostitution. It prohibited prostituting slaves, with much resistance, by the way. If you take the simplest Islamic so source and you read it, the, the 
the simplest historical source, and you read it, you find that there was a lot of resistance to that. It increasingly restricted the amount, the, the legitimate avenues for sexual practices, and it did so very much like alcohol, by pushing its way against an often reluctant population. Reluctant because not everyone was a companion, and not everyone was a, you know, of, of the first-rate religious quality. I mean, you're talking about a lot of people who, for example, converted because Muslims were in Tyre and Medina. And, in fact, a lot of these people, at the time of Abu Bakr, revert back to uh, the religion they came from, and you have the words of apostasy. So this attempt to basically say, oh, no, 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 well, everyone in Medina understood what was going on and had, and had become a devout Muslim, well, it's, it's even contradicted by our own sources. When our own sources say that when Abu Bakr came to power, they apostated from Islam. I mean, if they were sincere Muslims, how could you then say, well, Abu Bakr came, so they left Islam? It's, it's a contradiction, and it's a contradiction that is so obvious, it's such a historical contradiction, that it's sort of an obscene one to make. This is an example, by the way, of another conference in which I was expelled from because I had made this comment. I mean, even the ability, or, you know, try to make a comment in an Islamic conference about that Muawiyah and Ali did not like each other. I mean, in fact, they hated each other. We, I mean, they fought, they went to war. But according to contemporary Muslim dogma, no, they were to continue to have the highest regard for each other. Women at the time of Medina had experienced an empowerment which they had not experienced previously because the discourse of Islam, the discourse of the Prophet, and the discourse of the Quran was one in which women were not given their status because of their tribal affiliation or because of their family affiliation, but re-articulated, recasted into simply Muslims. People don't understand how revolutionary this idea was because people don't understand history. They don't read history. This was, if you think, yeah, yeah, okay, fine, so Islam improved the status of women. No, that's not what I'm saying. I'm not telling you Islam improved the status of women. What I'm telling you is Islam redefined women. The definition of women changed completely. So it is the distinction between improving society and redefining society. It was not, it was women now redefined according to religious conviction, which is materially, it's as if you created a new creature, a new species. And this species now is called a Muslim woman. Because it was incomprehensible. I mean, even Khadija, if you look at the sources, Khadija, the, first, the, the Prophet's first wife, the first thing that would be mentioned about her and known about her was her, her family status. It is not that Khadija was an honorable woman because of her system of belief. This was after Islam. Khadija was an honorable woman because she came from such and such family and she had such and such money. And she had such and such money because his father, who was one of the 
exceptions in, in, in pre-Islam society who had only one child, and that's Khadija, he loved her very much, and he wanted to make sure that she has, she's, she's well taken care of and protected, because he worried that after he dies, that she would be forced into one of the effectively prostitution arrangements. And so he made a particular arrangement to leave her with, with the money. Yeah, often people come, I mean, this, say, well, you know, yeah, but look at Khadija. Doesn't this prove that pre-Islamic, uh, in, in pre-Islamic Arabia, that women had a position? But it's completely missing the point. It's why did these women have the positions they had? And they had the positions because the definition of women was very different. It was a blood definition, and it was it was a blood definition, basically. While Islam came and made it a definition of conviction. Even if you do the most elementary reading of Bukhari, you do find that women become quite empowered by that. And there are numerous dynamics going on in which they are making all types of demands. All types of demands. I mean, it reaches the point, although it is well known in, in the Arabic language, it is well known. If you mean men and women, you use the masculine form. If you want to emphasize women too, you, in other words, you have reason to believe that people will exclude women, only then do you mention the feminine form. So if I'm writing, for example, a love song, I can address my wife in the masculine form. I'm not calling her a man. Stop calling you a man. But it is entirely acceptable to address your, your spouse or, 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 or your, the person you love or whatever in the masculine form. That's why, for example, you find a lot of contemporary Arab singers, they're, they're singing in the masculine form. Many Westerners say, oh, well, homosexuality is quite widespread in the Middle East because these people publicly sing for their men lovers. You don't understand that masculine form is entirely different discourse than English. But yet, and this is where the shocking element comes in, despite of that, and despite of the fact that these women were quite adept in Arabic because the, the poetry was the form of, of, of discourse, early Arab society, these women would come and say, we want to be mentioned specifically. Nowadays, you say, yeah, so what? We want to be mentioned specifically, yeah, so what? Because you have a consciousness about you which basically recognizes the differences between you and a man. They had that consciousness as well, but for them to come and say, I mean, this is, let me tell you, this is equivalent to a woman saying, I want to be pressed. Do you see how shocking this would be? Or I want to give the khutbah at Zuma. Do you see how shocking this would be? To come and tell the Prophet, why doesn't the Quran mention us specifically? That is equally shocking. It is completely foreign. There is no, and in fact, if the Prophet would have said, there's no need to. You know Arabic. What's wrong with you? He would have been entirely justified. He'd been entirely justified. According to the Arabic language, the Prophet could have simply said, why, why should you be mentioned specifically? We don't mention black people specifically. We don't mention yellow people specifically. We don't mention anything specifically. We talk generally. So why do you want an exception? I mean, he could have said that. But what is truly shocking is then the Quran comes and says, okay, fine, I will mention you specifically. 
it's very startling for there to be evidence of women attending halakha sessions, basically, effectively, with the Prophet. Men and women. And then they come and say, When we attend with men, we hardly can get a question in. The men are so noisy, so loud, there are so many of them. So what does this tell us? That they're, they're, they are not sufficiently mobilized to be there. Doesn't it? I mean, think about it. You hold a halaqa today, if you get one or two women, you're lucky. The attitude, the, the, the social consciousness for a woman is that she does not have to go to, to, to the mosque, and she really does not have to. I mean, if she learns, she probably, during her college years, when she's still excited about a few things, and once you're married, forget it. I, you know, once you're married, I am willing to bet money, although it's haram, that I will never see you. Not in a halaqa, not in a classroom, not in any setting. And this is not a, ma- a matter of family. Because if you think about it, there are a lot of non-Muslims who continue becoming socially and, and politically active even after they have children. I mean, and, and it's, not, it's not an issue of whether you, you, you have a child or not. It is the, the general sense of what is expected of you. And the expectations created by society also create accommodation. So, for example, a society that is accustomed to women coming to attend lessons or halakas with their children, what are they going to do? They're going to immediately make arrangements to accommodate the children because it becomes very prevalent. But if it's rare, then of course, no, you know, it's... Uh... So, for them but to, to, to actually be there, attending, and then come to tell the Prophet, the men constantly prevail over us because they're loud and, and rancorous and so on, we want a specific day for us. And the Prophet comes and says, okay, Wednesdays are for you. The historian in me finds it nothing short of shock. Because I tell you that even today, it is really debatable whether anyone would do it. I mean, for a man to hold a halaqa specifically for, for women, eh, I mean, you, you, you might do it the older you are, the more comfortable you are with it. It's not something that even the majority of people would feel comfortable with. It is shocking. I mean, there is no doubt about it. Shocking by every standard from their historical epoch. Now, there is a dynamic to sexual morality. Now, if you notice here, when Hind converts, Hind, you know who Hind is, right? Remember Hind is married to, to Abu Sufyan. Hind is famous for what? Hind Akilat in Kibad. That she had got open the Prophet's uncle's stomach, Hamza, when he's killed in Uhud, and ate his, or ate a part of his liver. Now interestingly, when she converts, after Mecca is the conquest of Mecca, and the Prophet tells her, you promise me not to commit adultery. Notice her response, it's quite interesting. She says, وَهَلْ تَذْنِي And do women of noble status commit adultery? Now this response is quite interesting. Why? Because it informs you, or it helps you understand sexual morality of that day and age. Sexual morality had nothing to do with your own personal convictions. It had everything to do with your status. Not to do with your convictions, it had to do with your status. 
In other words, if you were a few women from a noble family or a high tribe, you, you basically stuck to the rules of chastity. But no, it is because you're too high. It is beyond your dignity. If you were a woman of lower classes or a slave, it was simply considered not wrong for you. There was no punishment, for example, for adultery for a woman of a lower class. If a woman of a higher class commits a complete Islamic law, she's in trouble. She's in serious trouble. If a woman of a lower class, her husband can go complain, can, can go throw himself in the sea if he wants. The only thing that is that if he kills her, no, not even that. If he kills her, her tribe can still kill her. Because she's lower class, so it's expected. Yeah, you know, fine. And we have evidence of women, which were again preserved for us, a single woman from lower classes would be married to as much as ten men. And a single woman from lower classes would have a contract of conjugal relations with fifteen different men. We have plenty of evidence of that. Now, would a woman of a higher class marry more than one more than one man? Absolutely not. You see, you understand what I'm saying? That it is the the exclusivity was the privilege of the higher class. A woman of high class would not marry more than one man. A woman of high class would not have a relation with more than one man. And a woman of higher class would not accept her husband marrying more than one wife. A woman of lower class, it's expected. She can share her household with others, no problem. So, but then Islam comes and transforms sexual morality from an issue of status to an issue of conviction. In other words, comes Islam and says, your social status is irrelevant. This was nothing short of revolutionary. For the Arabs of that society, it was revolutionary. Shocking. And that why, that's why the enormous amount of resistance for Islam to come and say, Fornication is haram and this is the punishment or whatever. Without distinction between a noble woman or a noble man and a low class woman and a low class man. It sounded like the world was coming apart. How could you start treating all these people basically as the same? Arab society was not racist, was not racially segregated. But it was a society of tribal class, tribal status. And that is why the tribe fought very hard, because if it loses, it can lose everything. And it's ge for generations, its descendants will become treated as worthless. And if it wins, it wins everything. Now, there is no question that when Islam comes, in, its, in the process of dismantling the socially stratified society, it took several, several revolutionary steps. One, it made, for example, a marriage contract based on offer and acceptance. A marriage contract based on offer and acceptance. Can you imagine? Now you can imagine that. So what? You take this man as okay, yes, I do. But Back then, mesh contract was based on social 
rules, not offer an acceptance. It was only the lower classes who offered and accepted anything. The higher classes wouldn't do this. The higher classes had rules. But it came and basically said, all of you, anyone who's going to get married from now on, they're going to have to have an offer and acceptance. The consent of the woman became material. Again, destruction of the stratified, socially stratified society. When it came to rules of ownership of property, inheritance, and so on and so forth, it was dismantling a whole social structure and doing it in various mechanisms. There is also no question that there was enormous amount of resistance, and Bukhari is full of examples, and other than Bukhari, I mean, books of Islamic history are full of examples. Bukhari tends to collect more of these traditions, or Ibn Ishaq, or Ibn Sham, or Al Awza'i, or, or you know, the numerous other sources, document all types of social turmoil that society was experiencing because of its sort of rebirth, violent sometimes, quite violent rebirth. Now, when you come and say, the Qur'an talks about the hypocrites all the time. I mean, if you even read ten pages of the Qur'an, you see it's constantly talking about the hypocrites. The hypocrites. If it wasn't such an important social phenomenon, why would the Qur'an talk about it so much? The hypocrites want you to do this. The hypocrites are trying to do this. The hypocrites are trying to achieve this. Don't listen to the hypocrites. Don't deal with the hypocrites. Beware of the hypocrites. The hypocrites are mentioned only the mushrikeen are the ones mentioned more often, the, those who associate with God. Second to them are the hypocrites. But yet we are told by all Islamic sources that the hypocrites were basically Muslims. That's why they're called hypocrites. If you, are say, if you say, I'm not a Muslim, you're not a hypocrite. You say, I'm not a Muslim, I don't like Islam, you're not a hypocrite. When, when Muslims come and tell you, no, 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 everyone in Medina converted, and all of them were pious, they are contradicting the Qur'an. I mean, the dogma reaches to the point that they're willing to argue that the Qur'an is wrong just to preserve a dogmatic point. That is where I consider one enters into the field of true haram. Now, the hypocrites in Medina were resisting much of this, and they were resisting for financial and social reasons. This, this form of empowerment of women and the, the visibility of women, the Arab man was not used to women saying no. He's not used to a woman having, if she is from a high class, fine. You marry from a high class and you basically ignore her. In other words, she is your decorum. If you are from a high class, you're a noble descent yourself. So you go and you marry a woman from noble descent, but you know this is not the fun person. This is not the person you're going to be having your fun with. This is the decorum, basically, for an alliance. And then other than that, the real women that you deal with are the, the others. And these, the Arab man is not used to them saying no or even having a view about anything. They're basically there for a man's pleasure. That's, that's their role, that's their function. And they have no other function. Now, it was shocking to find that within the, the, the new dynamic, dynamism of Islam, that women suddenly have, you know, are attending halaqahs, are going to the mosque. We have, we have the, uh, the famous story in which there were two uh, men playing um, with spears in the mosque, and Aisha was lying down on the mosque, uh, on the Prophet's lap. He was watching the game, and she was lying down with her head on his lap until she fell asleep. 
So not only are we, I mean, women now can even partake in sports events without being the exploited victims of the sports event. Imagine this. Every sports event in which a woman be, be present up till now, she is the object of the, of the event. She's the prize, in other words. Now they're actually spectators. Now they actually come and, and partake in the dynamics of, of society as if they're, they're equal. We, when we receive, when we, for example, read that the Prophet raised Aisha in the street and she beat him. Can you imagine the impact of this image on the people of Medina? The Prophet, the Prophet himself, racing a woman in the street, and she beat him. By God, if an imam of the mosque today does that, he would be called a kafir and expelled out. Can you imagine an imam coming and telling you, oh, I'm going to go race my wife, come, come watch. Impossible, impossible. It would not happen, it would never happen. It was well known that the Prophet, for example, would sit down and mend his clothes and, 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 and help cleaning the house. Now, noble women, what noble women did is to bring servants. Noble women would not touch the house or touch cooking. This is the women of lower classes. It, it was, let me put, give, give you an example. There, you, there was a war that lasted a whole year because a woman of noble descent had been forced by her husband to prepare one meal. A war that lasted a year between two tribes. You have degraded our daughter. You force her to actually touch the food. Then you are saying she's as low as these other human beings. Suddenly Islam and its destructuring of, of, of deconstructing of, of social classes, these noble women cannot simply rely on servants, or even if they could because they can afford it. You have the example of the Prophet who is doing work with his wives, I mean, involved. The numerous stories that we read in Bukhari and Muslim and Nisa'i and Tirmidhi and Ibn Majah and Abu Ibn Dawood and Abi Khuzaymah and Ibn Hayyan and so on and so forth, the enormous amount of works that record to us, and if I share with you, if I would have, if you were here visiting me for a week, we would basically need about 10 hours a day of a week, 10 hours a day for a whole week, for me simply to share with you the evidence from Kenzul Ammal, starting from a book such as Kenzul Ammal, all the way to the Bukhari, of the enormous amount of documented evidence of the Prophet and the companions, in fact, involvement with their wives in dynamics that were revolutionary. And what you find also in, in poetry is that the non-Islamic, the un-Islamic tribes, the, the, the unconverted tribes, often made comments about these, these Muslims who seem to have gone insane. They're, they're, they seem to have completely Whacked out. In fact, in one such poem, the poet says, Thy God are these Arabs or the sons of jinn. I mean, it was inconceivable that an Arab would actually act this way. So they must be not Arabs. It must be that they, they're, they're all 
sons and daughters of jinn. Because otherwise, how can you justify this insanity that they perpetuate by this, these types of dynamics? 